Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. Uh, these first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. Uh, the What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, uh, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc., so what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, uh, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Anish Carve, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. It's good to be back on a Monday. Good to be back, indeed. Uh, we are going to continue into Thomas Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities. And we're going to be heading out of Chapter 2 and into Chapter 3 today. And I think you've got something useful to help us segue from Chapter 2 to Chapter 3. Yeah, so where we're leading with all of this is the debunking of the invincible fallacy. And the invincible fallacy, as Sowell describes it, is the idea that wherever there are disparate outcomes, it must have been the result of either discrimination or racial differences. And this really shows the erudition of Thomas Sowell. So in, in logic, we have this concept of an implication. Okay, We say either P implies Q or Q is necessary for P. And I want to give an example, and then I'm going to tie that to the facts and statistics that Sowell gives to debunk the invincible fallacy. So a good example would be that rain implies clouds and clouds are necessary for rain. So P, the P is rain and the Q is clouds in this case. And now we know that if it is raining, there must be clouds, but it's also true that the contrapositive of that has the same truth value. And this all makes sense in just a second. That means if there are no clouds, then it must not be raining. Now, it is not necessarily the case that just because we have clouds, we have rain. And here's where the, the wisdom and the intelligence of Thomas Sowell really comes in. So in order to debunk the invincible fallacy, which is disparity implies discrimination, Q 
he's now looks at the contrapositive and says, okay, in cases where we have no discrimination, if the invincible fallacy is true, we must then have no disparity. And he gives, this will carry us out of chapter two. So he gives the example of the city of San Francisco. And San Francisco tries to be one of the most liberal and most open cities, arguably is the, how would I explain it? Kind of the neoliberal vision of what a city should be, San Francisco, at least from a policy standpoint. And so you cannot argue that there is discrimination on the books in San Francisco. So we are in the no discrimination should now imply that there's no disparity. But an actual point of fact, what has happened since 1970 is that two thirds of the African American population of San Francisco has left. So even though they're implementing the most liberal, most neoliberal policies, which are supposed to be accepting and inclusive to the greatest number of people, they've, they, they've completely lost their African-American population. And the reason has to do with housing policy. They're just not building enough housing that people can afford to stay in the city. So that shows the one direction. So Seoul shows that just because there's no discrimination doesn't mean you're not going to get disparity, right? So the city of San Francisco, at least and at the first order is not implementing any discriminatory policies, but they're getting massively disparate outcomes. Okay. And then now let's look at another example where there was massive discrimination, but there was no disparity or the reverse of that disparity. And Seoul gives the example of Harlem. And Harlem was a predominantly white city. And there was very strong discrimination on the part of the landlords as African-Americans started to move into Harlem to prevent them from purchasing apartments. Now, what happened was those landlords fell to the law of economics. They weren't able to maximize the occupancy of their buildings, and therefore they lost the game and they lost to their discriminatory policies simply because they weren't as competitive as the, the landlords who were allowed, who were taking open tenants. Okay, so what is the key point here is that to debunk the invincible fallacy, Seoul takes it as a logician and he says, okay, here's an example where we had very high discrimination, but we ended up with the reverse of disparity. So no disparity. In other words, in spite of the type two discrimination, I'll explain this in a second, in spite of the racist landlords in Harlem, Harlem still became a predominantly African-American city. Now let's look at the counterbalance over in San Francisco. In spite of the fact that there was no discriminatory policy on the books, at least at the first order, we ended up with a massively disparate outcome and African-Americans were forced to leave the city. So that's really to take us out of chapter two and start to get into chapter three, which Sol calls the sorting and the unsorting of people. And sorting and unsorting is kind of the process by which people voluntarily associate with one another. And they, using the information at their disposal, are able to organize the world around and just to recapitulate the types of discrimination here, so Sol breaks down this word discrimination as we've talked about as a loaded word. You can be discriminating in your tastes of wine, or you can discriminate against individuals based on salmon antipathy that's in your heart. And so type 1A discrimination is not harmful. It's highly desirable. It uses information about individuals. Case in point, if somebody, an individual applies for a job and you do a background check on that individual, you're gaining type 1A information specific to that individual. Type 1B discrimination is also rational, but uses information about a group of people to infer about an individual and is subject to all the problems of statistics. And then type 2 discrimination is just antipathy or enmity-based discrimination, which says, I don't need any data 
I don't like this type, this class of people. So that's recapitulating the discrimination types. Actually, anything else you wanted to add in there as we start to talk about sorting and unsorting people? No, I think the other thing that's important there on the spectrum from 1A, 1B to 2 uh, in terms of types of discrimination is just the costliness, right? It's more expensive to get type 1A information. To support type 1A information, you need in information on the individual themselves, whereas 1B would be slightly less costly on a per individual basis because it's about a group. And then type two seems to be like an almost just a completely different flavor of discrimination, right? You've just uh, categorically blocked out one group of people. I don't like whatever race or religion that you're discriminating against out of some, you know, rigid uh, preconceived uh, discrimination, I guess I don't know what else to call it. So, and, and it's important that the cost of obtaining information factors into people's decisions, right? As, as he made the point earlier on in the book, if you're going to make kind of a low cost decision, it's okay to go with type one B, but if it's going to be something uh, a little bit more expensive then maybe you want more type one, a individual data to discriminate on which individual is right for the role. Yeah, I think it's good to dilate there a little bit in, in terms of risk assessment from an evolutionary perspective necessitates that we make kind of these low cost judgments whenever possible. And Sol quotes Walter E. Williams in this chapter. And I, I want to kind of come out with that because with that quotation, because I think it'll help guide, guide the conversation. And, and what he says is information is not costless. People therefore seek to economize on information costs. In doing so, they tend to substitute less expensive forms of information for more expensive forms. Physical attributes are cheap to observe. If a particular physical attribute is perceived as correlated with a more costly to observe one, the observer might use that attribute as an estimator or proxy for the costly to observe attribute. And a classical example of this is if you're walking on the street at night in a large city and you see a hooded figure approaching you, you can now attain, you can try to attain costly type 1A information and talk to that person and kind of examine them closely and see if they need to do you harm. Or you can cross, you can use a heuristic and cross the other side of the street. And the really interesting thing here, and this really comes back to the fatal conceit and the invincible fallacy, is that we, in this sense, have to pit billions of years of survival as evolution against a few hundred years of reason and what we think to be correct. And Sol has a very unique way of attacking the fatal conceit. Again, what is the fatal conceit? Is that wherever there is order, it must have come from conscious planning. Well, using that heuristic, you wouldn't actually be able to get through your daily life. You would have to look under every wreck. You would have to pet every tiger. You would have to take each risk individually and not use any heuristics to kind of navigate through daily life. And I think the deep point is that Homo economicus uses not all of the information that is available, but uses the most efficient information that is available to make the given economic decision that's in front of them. And this is the hard part for governments that want to impose rational order on the people. And the way that the invincible fallacy really shows up at the government policy level is, wait a minute, we think that every organization, every occupation should look exactly like a random sample of the underlying population. And what we're going to show in this chapter on sorting and unsorting is that people left to their own devices making rational type 1A, type 1B discriminatory decisions where there's no antipathy, never look like a random distribution. That's really the key point of this chapter on sorting and unsorting people. Yeah. And I think the, we've mentioned this before, 
I think you can almost say the terms self-sorting and self-organization are somewhat indistinguishable where he's referring to, you know, people self-organizing into different groups or societies, but it's the same thing. Like you wrote in your paper, right? The flock of starlings, they're self-organizing right. in a way we observe this up and down the stack in nature. I was listening to a podcast yesterday where a biologist would scramble the, the cells that formed a frog's face, right? They would take the eye and uh -huh. put it over here. They completely scrambled it and then let the cells do their thing. And what do they do? Well, they self-organized back into a frog's face before they developed. So we see it everywhere, but for some reason we think in the sphere of humanity that we need some, you know, conscious controller to make people be organized. Whereas that, that's just inconsistent with all the observations we see at every other layer of nature. Yeah, I want to go into an example of self-sorting that Sol has here in chapter three. And he says, he's talking about immigrants who come and settle in the United States. And he gives many examples. I'm just going to pick out one. So he talks about, well, let's talk about both these. People tend to sort themselves out, not only in their residential patterns, but also in their social interactions. 20th century Japanese immigrants to Brazil not only settled in Japanese enclaves, most Okinawan immigrants in Brazil married other Okinawans rather than marrying fellow Japanese from other parts of Japan, much less marrying members of the Brazilian population at large. He goes on. It was much the same story among German immigrants in 19th century New York, where most Bavarians married other Bavarians and most Prussians married other Prussians. Among the Irish immigrants as well, most 19th century marriages that took place in New York's Irish enclaves were marriages between people from the same county in Ireland. And what are we seeing here? We're seeing that not only is information massively unevenly distributed, but people try to preserve the cultural and I would say traditional in the Hayekian sense of the word information that they've received from their homelands. So what does this actually mean? It means that people who were from Okinawa, two people who are from Okinawa, by virtue of the fact that they know where the other person came from, that gives them a lot of information about their future compatibility. And we see here that this has absolutely nothing to do with race and everything to do with culture. And that people, here's the, here's the key thing. You would expect if you pursue the neoliberal agenda and say that everyone is equal, you would expect then for all marriages to be a coin toss. And we should see equal proportions of, of racial mixing and any kind of demographic that you want to slice it by. But in fact, that is not practical for homo economicus, and it has nothing to do with race or antipathetic discrimination. It has to do with the fact that ind individuals prefer to stay within their own culture, and this allows them to accelerate the speed with which they can develop themselves in a new country. And this is just describing, actually, which a community which I believe survives today in Manhattan, Klein Deutschland, Little Germany. And how the Germans, even probably to this day, I bet you would see a non-zero correlation between where people came from Germany 100 years ago and how, where they live today in the United States. And I guess this is a perfect example of people who were sent into the melting pot, what an interesting metaphor of the United States, and then using self-sorting actually preserved some of the structure that they brought from their homelands. How else can we, can we make that? I feel like that explanation was empirical, but maybe we can develop it a little bit more so this, this concept of self-sorting is clearer. Uh, well, I mean, there's the old adage, right? There's birds of a feather, birds of a feather flock together. And, you know, it seems like if you're in a new place, especially there's a lot of uncertainty and risk and things to be figured out. So if you have people that you already have common values with, 
it's cheaper to establish trust or rapport with them. And then you can kind of face all of that unknown in a concerted fashion versus being just alone. And there's another, um, what's that old saying? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far yeah. go together. So it makes sense that if you have, you know, I kind of think about it in programming terms, like software terms, you come over with a certain software package, which would be your, your enculturation and whatnot, your, your language, you know, all of these things that kind of characterize you as a, a participant in culture and you're assimilating to another culture. It makes sense that you would just from an economic standpoint, you would want to congregate with those that you already shared values with because it would be, there's lower costs to establishing trust with them. And therefore you can just kind of get back to doing business. And this ties in um, to his later point that where there were smaller populations of African-Americans, I think in the North, he would say they would assimilate more quickly to the culture because they were, they were a smaller proportion of the total population. Whereas when larger groups of African-Americans moved to the North, there tended to be more uh, segregation and, and racial tension. So it's, there's this term in the book, History of Religious Ideas by Murcia Iliad. He uses the term syncretism. And this is mm. where two different uh, cultures come together and they start to exchange you know, their uh, cultural qualities, let's say, over time. But obviously, if there's a larger culture meeting a smaller culture, the smaller culture tends to absorb those qualities more quickly because there's there's a disproportion it's disproportionate between a larger group and a smaller group. So it seems to me like that's what's happening here is you have this mixing of uh, people with common values and it's natural to want to organize yourself to those you already know and can identify with. And then, but you're also at the same time going to be absorbing certain cultural qualities from whatever area you're immersed in. Yeah, that gives me kind of an interesting way to run with a topic that Soul develops later in the chapter. And so we've just given an example of sorting. And, and I want to give actually one really more startling example of sorting. And then we're going to talk about unsorting and ways the governments unsort people and show that that actually has the opposite of the intended effect. Another startling statistic, which Soul goes over in this chapter, which you and I were talking about in the warm up for the show, is this idea that the correlation in IQ between husbands and wives is at least as high as the correlation in IQ between brothers and sisters. So what is happening here? This is really interesting. This means if we put the x-ray glasses of IQ on, people, I mean, I don't think before they get to the altar, even after necessarily, that husbands and wives know one another's IQs. But that is, the IQ is measuring some kind of distributed prerequisite, which we don't understand for success, in this case, the success of marriage. And what it shows that individuals have an intuition for their compatibility with other people and their economic productivity. Like one can only infer that couples that are vastly mismatched in IQ wouldn't have the same economic outcomes, wouldn't have the same happiness outcomes, wouldn't have, wouldn't produce families of the same quality. And so this sorting is happening constantly around us at all levels. It's happening due to actions of the individual. It has nothing to do with type two discrimination and it causes orders. What's the key thing that Sol is showing, much like Hayek, is that you can have order without any central planning and without type two antipathy-based discrimination. 
And this kind of got me thinking a little bit about unsorting. So we should explain kind of the, the Marxist and neoliberal ideal is that everybody has equal access to everything and irrespective of their starting point in life should have the same outcome. And so we'll give some really interesting statistics. Uh, I, I should be able to pull this up here in just a moment where the government forcibly unsorts individual. Let me give an example. So they have, there are different initiatives which aim to help people in lower socioeconomic strata by moving them to higher socioeconomic strata in subsidized housing. And boy, so I guess the key thing, Seoul cites somewhere between three and five studies, which shows that when you take someone from a disadvantaged, lower socioeconomic strata and put them in a, in a higher socioeconomic strata, that has over periods of 10 and 20 years, no effect on their economic outcomes, no effect on criminal behavior, no effect on the likelihood of those individuals to continue on welfare or not. And so here is an example where the government wishes to help people who it believes are disadvantaged. And you can, they are taking the person out of the culture, but not taking the culture out of the person, if that makes sense. And so they're forcibly unsorting people and empirical study after empirical study after empirical study. And Sol's got a whole run of these in the book shows that it provides no benefit, no net benefits to these individuals. In fact, there are drawbacks, but I want to pause there. Maybe you, you found that quote and, and wanted to jump in. Well, I, you know, the thing that came up for me there is, again, if government is intervening to try and create a certain outcome that also necessitates uh, government subsidy to some extent and all government revenues, as we know, coming through taxation or inflation, so there's this net wealth destructive phenomenon that's going into funding this unsorting of people. And so I don't know that, you know, even if you could unsort without that cost, it seems like it wouldn't work, but I would say there's also this additional cost that's being necessarily imposed. That would be a, a net negative for, for everyone really that's, that's involved. And back to the quote you read earlier, there's a line after that. He said, in a sense, Professor Wilson's reactions were similar to those people who blame store owners for the high prices charged in low income, high crime neighborhoods, rather than blame those whose behavior raised the cost that the store's prices have to cover. So in a way, this, this even if it is done with the best of intentions to unsort people in a you know more just way or whatever the, the government's aim is, they're increasing the cost to everyone, right? Because you're, you're, you're siphoning wealth from some to subsidize this housing initiative. So it's, um, those costs are being passed along to everyone, I guess, is my point. So in, in multiple ways, in yeah. multiple ways. And I want to read the study and go back. And so this is one of the key thinking nuances that Seoul introduced is we have to look at the costs that are imposed, not only on the people who are discriminated against, but the cost on the discriminators, right? And his classic example of a cost imposed on discriminators was in South Africa, where we have where we had active type two, to this day, active type two discrimination, antipathy-based discrimination, even structural discrimination in the laws. Those employers that chose to implement that type two discrimination had a shortage of construction workers, right? And it was the same case when we look back at the desired, it was the railroad companies that wanted to integrate the railroad cars. And there were various laws in the South that prevented the integration. So what is the key point here? And this is the same, we opened up this episode with this idea that in Harlem, the landowners 
tried to impose, they impose a cost on themselves that we are not going to be able to occupy our buildings as efficiently. So this is the key thing is really for us to start to x-ray what are the hidden consequences, right? Economics at the end of the day is the study of hidden consequences and Sol is trying to get us to pay attention to those hidden consequences. So here's a little bit, I want to kind of bring Sol's full erudition to bear here. So he, he's got a whole run of these studies. I'll just do one. A study of that program, this is a forcible unsorting program, published in the Journal of Human Resources, concluded that we did not find evidence of improvements in reading scores, math scores, behavior or school problems, or school engagement overall, or for any age group. He goes on. Another study of the same program published in the American Journal of Sociology concluded that, quote, there is no evidence that extra time spent in low-poverty integrated neighborhoods improves economic outcomes. So it isn't just that a cost was inflicted upon society, it's that there was no net benefit or no net gain. And Sowell shows that the driving factor is, is a failure to understand what the actual underlying problem is. So to take the example which you mentioned, if we think that the higher cost of goods in poorer neighborhoods is a result of greedy employers, we're just going to inflict punishment on those employers. And what they'll do is end up closing their stores because they can't run them profitably. It turns out that the reason that the poor pay more, as Sowell says, is that there is a higher rate of theft in poorer neighborhoods. And as a result, business owners have to offset that rate of theft. So the correct understanding here, what is actually needed is increased government policing and increased law enforcement. So there is a solution that government can apply, but it, it requires that we not be susceptible to the invincible fallacy and actually really apply our minds to understand what the actual causative factors are at play before we issue an intervention. Yeah, it's a great point that the what's needed is the increase in security efficacy rather than some punishment on the employer. The employers or the store owners, I guess, in this example, they're not just arbitrarily increasing prices on low and low income and poor neighborhoods. They're passing along the cost of securing their operations, which are a That's component right. of operating in those environments. So, it's and, and the if we if we say, "Hey, businesses, stop gouging these mm -hmm. lower socioeconomic, stop gouging poor economies, poor communities," what happens is they lose all access to those goods because right. the businesses just shut down and say, "I yes. can't operate pro profitably." And a problem that's near and dear to your heart—you see this today. The government gives will give. And many politicians will give every possible explanation for inflation, except the inflation of the money yes. supply. I want to give two examples. So what do we hear? Prices are raising because of Vladimir Putin. Okay, <laughs> maybe there's a supply. So that's one excuse we'll hear. They, the Biden administration was even calling it the Putin price hike at one point. Mm. Uh, the other thing we'll hear is that prices are rising because corporations are greedy. Right. Right. And so this is, again, what Sol is trying to help us to do is to x-ray the facts of the matter and try to understand. But if you understand, wait a minute, there's been a massive expansion of money supply. And the Federal Reserve is basically admitting this now by having to raise interest rates, which has all yeah. kinds of knock-on effects on the economy. But, but uh, maybe that's a great example there of how we are shown a red herring. Mm -hmm. And said, you know, that's actually a great example of the invincible fallacy. Well, because corporations are greedy is actually the reason that that prices are are rising. When in fact, there are other structural factors that we need to look at. Yeah, and embedded in that accusation is the value judgment of greedy, right? Like, how do you quantify greedy? Um, this reminds me of I think this was Biden as well telling 
either it was a tweet or a public announcement where he's telling gas station operators nationwide to stop increasing their prices. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like the price of oil, the key input to gasoline is going up. Of course, those prices are increasing. And the, the real, the actual check on greediness or which would be, you know, uh, excessive profiteering at the expense of your customers is competition, right? Competition is what keeps producers honest. So there's right. not, there's not some kind of like moral or legal shaming that can occur. I mean, I guess it can cause producers to reduce prices, but then effectively they're just hurting themselves when what you actually need is just free and open markets and open competition such that producers compete to satisfy customers uh, profitably but economically at the same time. It's doubly ironic that Biden would say something like that because they took something like a million barrels of oil out of the strategic petroleum reserves so that they could get gas prices down right around midterms, mm -hmm. right? So they know that there's a true supply and demand dynamic operating here. And you mentioned this word greed and, and Sol, it's not from this book, but he has a great quotation. He says, I will never understand how it is greedy to try and keep all of one's earnings, but not greedy for other individuals to make a claim on those earnings, which is what people are doing when they are advocating for redistribution. 100%. This is, that's where I draw the line, actually, between self-interest and greed. Is We want everyone to be as self-interested as possible, right? To run businesses that are as profit, profitable as possible, have as much earnings as possible, as much net wealth as possible. But you want the limiting principle on those efforts to be the private property of other people. So if you start increasing your own wealth position by stealing from others, that's when I think self-interest crosses over into the domain of greed. Now, admittedly, this is a value right. judgment, but it's just where I choose to draw the line. Well, and this is why Mises's view of the market as a process which is run by the consumers is so important because there are only two alternatives. Either the choices of the consumers will guide what the capitalists produce or somebody's arbitrary judgment. Again, enter the the invincible fallacy, enter unsorting people, or some government bureaucrats' arbitrary judgment will try and dictate what the market produces. And as we've seen, that produces shortage and discontent. And this idea of capitalist profit, which many people on the left seem to be very afraid of, really only implies two things. Profit is not something extra. It is a measure of the efficiency of the process. When we take profit out of the process, and this is why we see that non-governmental organizations, non-profit, actually governmental organizations, which don't have to make ends meet, incur some of the greatest waste possible because they can always foist their losses on the taxpayer. So it isn't that profit is something extra or that it's something that only accused to a few people. It is the efficiency of capital allocation that allows for the lowest prices in the marketplace, that allows for capitalists to hire more labor, and allows for the most efficient redistribution of that wealth. Right? When Amazon becomes more wealthy, what do they do? They turn around and grow more and hire more people. I think there are probably a few nuances in there which we should break down so that we're helping people because I think it's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. It's like, hey, wait, why is profit this great thing? Well, it's this great thing because it allows us to incentivize efficiency. And if we don't put profits first, we're incentivizing inefficiency, which is exactly what we get in either overproduction or underproduction of goods in planned economies. I love the definition, actually. Profit is the measurement of the efficiency of the market process. And admittedly, maybe that's somewhat of a 
it's not a, a precise measurement, right? Sometimes people get on to me when you say money is a measure of value. Of course, value is subjective. You can't precisely mathematically measure it, but it's sort of an approximate gauge, let's say. And that is what you want, right? You want to increase aggregate profits for every market actor because that essentially means they are in a market. When we say that, when I say market, I mean in a, a forum where property cannot be violated, only consensually exchanged. That basically indicates that they are satisfying the demands, the most urgent demands of consumers in the most efficient, effective way possible, right? And it's that race that drives innovation, that drives intelligent capital allocation. It's like people are saying, we want this. They're voting with their wallets through buying and selling. And then producers are rushing in to satisfy those demands. And the, the more profits you create, that means a that, that indicates that you're doing a better job. So the, this weird, we have this weird demonization of profits in the minds of most people today. You know, they talk about like, oh, for-profit companies and oh, this is a non-profit company. So this company's okay. It's like the exact opposite actually, right? Um, not that nonprofits are bad per se, but they're not going to drive innovation and efficient capital allocation the same way a for-profit organizations will. Yeah, the Austrians have a great line on this. And I think Mises explicitly says, he said, profit is a psychic phenomenon. What does that mean? This is the reason that in a voluntary exchange, both people can profit and both people can come out richer because you wouldn't have affected the exchange if you didn't think the good you were going to receive was more valuable to you than the money that was in your in your pocket. And this is this, I guess that's how Mises breaks down this, this paradox is that yes, there are these kind of cardinal objective numbers or prices in the market, but the actual feeling of profit is an intensive and the feeling of value is an intensive quantity quality, I should say, and individuals have to judge that for themselves. But one of the ways that we keep score and one of the ways that we know which businesses should continue and which shouldn't is simply by looking at, is that business able to make ends meet? And this is really, I don't know how we got here, but this is really the connection that proof of work has to reality. And when planned economies become disconnected from reality and they just say, well, everybody should have everything, time and time again, uh, Vietnam, the former Soviet Union, the list goes on and on and on. They just end up producing massive, massive shortage and massive poverty, North Korea being another example. And the key thing there, I guess, that profit is this is this psychic phenomenon. And I want to just start to turn us back a little bit towards this, this costs of unsorting people. So there's the physical cost of implementing these government programs, which we've just shown don't work, where we try and forcibly take people out of one socioeconomic stratum and put in them in another. But here's the really interesting thing. What we want to do is debunk the invincible fallacy that wherever there are disparate outcomes, it must have been the result of discrimination. And a few of the statistics or quotes, really, that, that Sowell gives is one starts from the Chicago Tribune. And I want to now look, and we'll go back and talk about rates of violence in the postbellum and antebellum South between blacks and whites, which Sowell covers in this chapter. He's talking about the unsorting of individuals. And the Chicago Tribune says, the harshest criticism of dispersing public housing's tenants comes not from whites, but from blacks. In, a, in Harvey, a struggling working-class African-American suburb south of the city, nearly one of every 10 housing units is already occupied by renters with subsidies. And some Blacks feel that those people make it tough on those of us trying to make something of ourselves, says Shirley Newsom, a homeowner in Kenwood, Oakland, and a longtime voice of moderation. That's why white America doesn't want me living next to them, because they look at me and figure I'm from a place like public housing. 
I kind of smashed two disparate quotes together there. But what we're looking at is the cost that is imposed on the individuals that the government is trying to help. And they end up creating and reinforcing some of the various stereotypes that they're trying to break by not realizing, and this we'll, we'll talk about, Sol looks at, I think, Steven Pinker's statistics. And what he says is that it, prior to the mass exodus of African-Americans from the South into the North, the murder rates in Chicago were the same between African-Americans and whites, were identical. Eventually, after many large numbers of African-Americans from the South entered Chicago, the murder rate in the African-American community went to five and then 13 times the murder rate in the white community. So this is again showing here that it is not, race is not the deciding factor. The key point here is that there are cultural differences which take place during these migrations of people and that aren't accounted for by naive government interventions that try and unsort people when people would have done a better job of sorting themselves. Yeah, it's so interesting. I wonder why, too, if there's another ulterior motive for government to have such an emphasis on race, or or if it's just naivete, if they're just folk, if they're just missing the forest for the trees, something like that. So this is important, really important question. So so first of all, as a libertarian, government has a responsibility to protect the rights of the smallest minority, the individual. So all individuals should have equal merit and equal opportunity under the law and should be treated equally under the law. And ironically, the government has actually made that illegal in some cases. And so uh, there's a quote, maybe I can find it in this chapter, where housing and urban development came and said, the invincible fallacy right at work here is that even if you apply the same process equally to all races, it is illegal to have a process that will produce different outcomes for different races. This now becomes almost impossible if you're a bank, for instance, evaluating mortgages to do your job. And you almost certainly have to act against reality and act against what the economic, desired economic or economically rational outcomes are. Now, you ask, why is race so important? It's not. It shouldn't matter. Because when we're talking about type 1A discrimination, when we're talking about treating people as individuals, race is totally irrelevant. But I want to talk about this. In the ideal of Marxism, you must induce class warfare in order to seize power. And I think this is why they, they have these terms, uh, race baiting is one example, where governments take politicians, let's be specific, use this concept of the invincible fallacy. They point to discrimination and watch part two. They say, there's discrimination. Give me the power to fix it. So all of that to say, the emphasis on things that make humans different, race, gender, religion, is purely done by politicians to stir the pot so that they can seize power to quote unquote, right those wrongs by playing on the naivety of people to fall for the invincible fallacy. So it's not, race isn't important. Any self-respecting individual will tell you that, but politicians will come in, individuals who want to seize power to unsort things according to their own vision will come in and tell you otherwise. Such a great point. I love that quote. You must induce class warfare to seize power. It's like a classic divide and conquer, right? If there's, if you have one group of people that have relative solidarity amongst themselves, that'd be very difficult to conquer. But if you can divide them and turn them against one another, then 
you create this natural demand for law and order, right? And then you can present yourself as the solution to that divisiveness. Um, classic dictator's playbook, I guess. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit something we were talking about before the episode kicked off. Yanmi Park. So uh, there's a little clip from hers on Instagram. And and this will, I think some people who have watched the podcast have asked, you know, what, what does inequality have anything to do with what money is? And I think it's important to answer that. I guess the first relationship is Seoul is arguably one of the most important economists, probably the most important 20th and 21st century economists. And the second is this has everything to do with the ultimate question of the limits on government. When should government interfere? Where should they have the power? And when should that power be left up to individuals? And, and coming back to Yanmi Park, she's got a little, she's in tears when she's saying this. And I think you mentioned she was on Dr. Peterson's show. People can go check her out. Yeah. I first heard her on Jordan Peterson's podcast. And I think her story is uh, just a very powerful and painful story to listen to. Yeah. I would just encourage people to check out the episode, not to go into the details, but she's a defector from North Korea. So, so here's where, where Thomas Sowell and discrimination disparities has everything to do with what is money and everything to do with how we design a world where the most, the greatest number of people have the greatest possible wealth and the greatest possible freedom. And what she says is when the authoritarians seize power in North Korea, they made two promises. We'll give you three square meals a day. And particularly, I think it was rice and beef stew. So they, they promised a specific meal, at least in her words. And the second thing they promised is we will remove inequality. And what they ended up producing was mass poverty, mass oppression, a country that literally on a satellite map is dark at night. I don't know if you've ever seen a satellite picture of North Korea and South Korea, but yeah. that shows you what the vast difference in technology and development is. And so the key point here is that the invincible fallacy was used to seize power by the dictators in North Korea. And they said, there's inequality, we're going to take it away. Yanmi then goes on to explain, she says, I am now in America. I have escaped the unsorting of the egregious North Korean regime. And now I look around myself and I talk to other Americans in New York and they seem depressed. I ask them, why are they depressed? And they say, because America has inequality. And, and one of the things I want to talk about, again, this is hard for people to swallow, hard for people to grasp. The fact that you, that people are not equal one to another is the only method by which an individual can escape poverty. And when we, I just want to give people some, some quick statistics here, which are speaking ahead to chapter four. What Seoul shows is that one of the ways that government lies with statistics is they create categories of oppressed people that, that don't really exist. And I want to give an example. So he divides the economy into quintiles. So 20%, 20%, 20%, all the way from the bottom to the top. And now a politician will say, well, America's poor suffered this, this, this during a decade period. And what Seoul shows is that because, thank God, we have inequality in wealth distribution, of the people in the lower, the lowest quintile, within a decade, 79% of, the, excuse me, within a decade, 30% of that have reached the highest quintile. And 80% were immediately not present in the lowest quintile as well. And he shows that net net, what we call the lowest quintile, what we call the poor, only 1% of the entire population of America even remained in that quintile. What is that? That's inequality. And thank God for inequality because 
these people are able to make themselves unequal to their selves from yesterday. And this is why you've said this many times, Robert, the only way to make people equal is equal in suffering, equal in the grave, or equal in poverty, which is exactly what North Korea did. They said, we're going to eliminate, and they asked for a very specific, they just said, give us our lands and properties, and we will give these things to you in exchange. And so this is a classic example. Unsorting people seems like a very casual thing, and it seems like something that we are doing in America. Again, immune to evidence, we've just given examples of how unsorting people socioeconomically doesn't produce better outcomes for those individuals. But this is why the invincible fallacy is still invincible. People will still continue to come and point at inequality statistics, say the only way this could have arisen was from discrimination, a lie, both historically and empirically. And then they will say, this is the part you have to watch out for. Give me, give the government bureaucrats the power to unsort people, and I will fix this for you. Well, I think Yanmi shows beautifully what fixing this for you actually leads to. Yeah, if anything, you should be scared to death of the word equality, right, in terms of equality of outcome, because it's inequality is intrinsic to the economic division of labor. In a way, it's like it lets us trade on our natural diversity, right, of skills, habits, uh, genetic diversity, experience, human know-how, capital. human, all, all these things that make us different in a true free market economy, we can specialize on the things we're really good at and that make us discernibly different. Let other people do the same type of specialization on their individual, you know, skills, characteristics, characteristics, et cetera. And then we all trade the fruits of one another's labor and we all benefit. So it's a positive sum game that's premised on the natural inequality or diversity to use a nicer word. Uh, that we observe in one another. Like there are no two people that are the same. So we can't fight that. You have to embrace that. And to embrace that, I think, is to have a free market with a deep division of labor. Yeah, and there's an interesting thought experiment there. And it is that, well, if we push this idea of equality to its natural conclusion and say, wait a minute, if we're all equal, aren't we all performing the same jobs? If we're all performing the same jobs, to your point, where is the division of labor? We're all doing a little bit of farming, a little bit of house cleaning. A little, there, you are not able to go deeply as an individual and produce the talent for society, produce the goods and services for society that you can uniquely reproduce because you're stuck doing everything. You're stuck in your every action recapitulating civilization. And this is precisely the naivete of the invisible, of the invisible fallacy is that Things should roughly look like a random distribution, but they don't because people have a tremendous cause. They have a tremendous incentive to sort themselves to other individuals that they feel that they can be economically productive with. And the government nine times out of 10 isn't helping by forcibly unsorting people. Yeah, it's such a good point. And then the, the, just to maybe get a little more nuance on that, that I do believe in the utility of something like moral equality or equal in the eyes of the law, right? You don't want the law treating certain individuals differently, right? And to me, that's just the level playing field or the equal rules for all the players in the game. That doesn't mean you're, you want, you seek each player in the game to have an equal outcome, right? There's going to be the LeBron James of the world, and there's going to be all the other basketball players, but the rules of basketball that they're playing are the same, right? It treats all players the same in the eyes of the rules of the game. And 
that is desirable, right? Just to have fixed, predictable rules that are not discriminating any individual. That makes a lot of sense. But when you try to, when you, I guess this is a, uh, a mistaken export of some kind, right? You want equal rules for all players, but somehow people blur that line into equal outcomes. And that's where things make no sense at all. Like what, if you were going to have a, a season of basketball and you say, we're going to have equal outcome for all the players this year. Like, what does that even mean? That doesn't make any sense. Everyone's just going to have the same amount of points and free through free throws and rebounds by decree. Like there's no game to be played there. There's no, there's nothing, nothing to be accomplished. And if you map that over into the economic domain, everyone has the exact same amount of wealth. Well, no one has an incentive to increase wealth. So we're all going to have the same amount, but we're going to have the same amount that Yonmi Park received, which was poverty. Yeah. Well, and this reminds me of what I would call misproduction or underproduction in socialist economies. So at a time when people were starving in the former Soviet Union, there were crops rotting in the field. And the reason was the farmers that had a surplus production received no incentive. There was no reason for them to take bring their crops to market because they were going to get the pay, paid exactly the same whether they were highly productive or whether they were significantly underproductive. And that, in a nutshell, is why to each according to his needs and from each according to their abilities doesn't work because there's no incentive for me to produce according to my ability and my crops will literally rot in the field and I have no incentive to bring them to market even if there's a shortage because I don't gain any, here's the magic word, there's no profit to be had from doing that. Why would I work 20 hours a day or 22 hours a day to bring my crops to market when there's no incentive to me to do so. It's a great point. Uh, maybe we could modify it and say from each according to their produce to each according to their demand. You know, that's the way the market really sorts well, this that's out. What you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think the way you, so what you explained there was that as a political agenda, what, so first of all, what we should, as people who care about, positive economic and positive moral and positive legal outcomes for society who want a constructive and ordered world, we should 100% be focused on the equality of the rule of law. And that somehow gets turned into by the invincible fallacy, watch this, that gets turned into, wait, 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 we need to have equal outcomes. But again, Seoul is showing just because they're unequal outcomes doesn't mean that it was a result of discrimination. Sometimes, Many times, it's the example of the free choices of free individuals acting in their own interests and implicitly acting in the interests of their community. And a good example of this is that uh, there, there are different indices or different measures of gender disparity. And what you can see in the economic literature is actually the, the countries that have the lowest gender disparity, so the highest levels of inequality, show the greatest disparity in the choice of majors between male and female. Right. So here's a classic example. It's like, wait a minute. Why don't we have pick any pick any field? Uh, let's say let's say engineering. Why don't we have the same exact number of male and female engineers? Well, it must be the resort, the result of discrimination. False. It has to do with the fact that men and women specialize have different in the aggregate. It doesn't mean that a woman can't be the best engineer in the world. They have different specialist characteristics and make different lifestyle choices which may then show up as highly disparate outcomes. It has nothing to do with the discriminatory nature of the procedure or the, the profession. And what Peterson says is, you know, like how come we're only crying about inequality in certain jobs? Like why is nobody complaining that all garbage men or something, you know, more than 90% of sanitation right. engineers, let's use a nice word, are male. Why is nobody complaining about that? 
And it shows very well that politicians are selective to the numbers that are going to outrage people. And they pick those numbers not only to incense and divide the populace, but to grab power so that they can unsort people. Yeah, it, man, it's so interesting that maybe there's some kind of like semantic sabotage where you get people keyed in on this equality. You know, you you want more a moral equality or equality in the eyes of the law or equality of rules in terms of their applicability to the two individuals. But then that term just gets muddied into the equality of outcome domain. And then people start to, you know, I guess, lump these together. They're like, oh, we just need all equality. And it, I don't know, just, there doesn't seem to be much effort in political discourse to disentangle the two, but it makes sense that they wouldn't want to, because there's an incentive to create this divisiveness among people. So you can seize power, as we said earlier. So it just, man, it, it really points to the importance of subtle semantic distinctions. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> and I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach, uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. 
Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. It does. And it reminds me of something we tackled in our first podcast. Of the, it's an observation that Mises and Hayek make of Marx. And what he says, what he observes is that the only, this is a sleight of hand, as we've called it in the past. The only way Marx was able to achieve the intellectual sleight of hand of the Communist Manifesto was to use three full-blown different definitions of society simultaneously. So there are three different and contradictory definitions. And this is why when Hayek wrote the fatal conceit, he didn't even he refused to use the word society because it had been made so meaningless by the Marxists of the world. And what Mises shows is that every time the, the every time society acts in a positive role, then Marx attributes that, okay, that's the collective, that's society. When it acts in a negative role, he calls it the state. But those are really, in many cases, the same entity. So this verbal sleight of hand, this really troubles me, Robert, because how do we correct this? There seems to be no limit to how much people can be fanned into an outrage. And I think what you pointed out is that precision is required. And this is the whole point of Austrian economics, is that if you're going to treat economics as a formal logical system, you then need to be very precise about your terms. Okay, politicians are not precise about their terms, and yet they're trying to plan society based on their vision and application of these terms. And the question really becomes, well, Bitcoin's answer to this is, I'm done with words. Let's use pure mathematics and cryptography. And you know, 21 million is 21 million is 21 million. And, and let's build a new world on top of this. But I don't have a good answer for how we get the populace to think critically. And by the way, for all of his, I feel like over 20 books, that's ultimately what Sol is calling the citizens of the world to do, is that all the theory in the world is of no value unless you stop and think. And he's trying to get people to stop and think. So what is the answer to how we have more precise discourse as a society, or is it moot and we rely on technologies and pure mathematics? It seems strange, but that's what Bitcoin has done. Yeah, I mean, that that's the engineering disciplines, right? They're dependent on the precision of their terms and the formal systems, you know, calculus and all these other things that they, that are used. So I don't know. I mean, I think we would probably be trapped. We'd be trapped in these semantic games over control of, over the money supply and maybe systems that enshrine private property more generally without something like Bitcoin. Like you need the technological leap forward to get out of the political domain for things like money. I, I'm guessing. I mean, it seems seems reasonable to me. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's a hole we started to explore in the past. So I think <clears throat> you could see civilization coming in waves, right? So you, you start with the divine right of kings, then it becomes in some sense the the information rights of democracies, right? And then now we have the internet and we have Bitcoin. And wait a minute, individuals, it's totally possible. 
And in fact, in many cases for highly individualized actions, you know, what is my daughter allergic to? What is she not allergic to? That individuals are going to have information that no central planner can have. This is the man on the spot problem, which we've talked about before, and the problem of dispersed knowledge, as Hayek brings it. And I, I think the, the key point here is in that full spectrum of knowledge, not only that the individual actors have more information and they can act in a more precise and granular way, but the laws as written have tried to emulate the same way that gold was a forerunner to Bitcoin. The laws on the books have tried to emulate without knowing a code as law, because that's what the barristers and lawyers of the world were supposed to do, is we should have laws codified. And this actually comes to a really interesting point about Ethereum versus Bitcoin. And I, as a computer scientist, have a very, very simple argument for Bitcoin. And anybody who's worked on distributed systems or systems of any complexity knows that simplicity wins every single time. Okay, And how can the same way that the, our, our legal and political discourse have become so broad that we now are forced into contradictions with law. And remember, these are the three pillars of society, language, law, and money. We talked about in an earlier episode, we now have Supreme Court justices saying they don't know what a woman is and they can't define it, in spite of having very definite opinions about other things. So we see the assault on language. And my point here is code can only be law if there's a small, if the code is small enough for almost everybody to be able to audit and understand. And you have like a super validators and shards and like all these complicated entities. Now we went from proof of work to proof of stake in the Ethereum ecosystem. Nobody who knows anything about complex systems will say, wow, I trust the system more than something that just counts. What Bitcoin does is literally count. And so I think the answer here, what I want to come back to, I, I think the answer here has something to do with the constitution does a good job of limiting the scope, tried to do a good job of limiting the scope of government. But what about limiting the extent of the law? Let me give you an example. If you, the same way that there was a block size war, and we said, no, block size aren't going to get any bigger, we should say something about the legal laws of the land. How can you be free in a country where the tax code alone is 40,000 pages? What have we done? And every boondoggle known to man, every loophole known to special interests is hidden in those 40,000 pages of law. That's just the tax code. And so what I'm trying to say here, simpler systems are more robust. Maybe the, what we need to, we say, hey, the laws of the land need to fit in, make up a number, three pages, 3,000 words. And then we can start to have code as law. Otherwise, we're going to be arguing over definitions and people are going to be moving goalposts until they, they have seized all the power by rabble rousing the, the populace. Well, excellently said. I'm reminded here, to your point, the three pillars of civilization, language, law, and money. These are all internal communication networks too, right? Like they, they allow us to resolve uh, disputes often or really just to communicate and move information around. I tweeted this the other day. I just thought it was relevant. I said, the worst thing you can do to any self-organizing system is to interrupt its internal communications network. For the world economy, pricing is the internal communications network. Central banking destroys the self-organization of the world economy by interrupting pricing. But it's the same type of thing when we attack language, right? You, you create, you go from precise terms to slippery terms. You introduce this opportunity to, uh, what was the, the boondoggle was the term you just used, right? You can insert all right. these boondoggles into the language. You know, one group interprets it one way, another group interprets it, interprets it another way. You can't establish consensus and all the divisiveness creates this like frustration ultimately that says, just give me some strong 
law or strong man to enforce the law. That's right. And that seems to be a game that's been played over and over and over and over. So if we couldn't, if we can't get these things into something that's truly codified, like Bitcoin, then I think we just keep repeating that cycle. Um, and how can Ethereum reminds me of, of the IRS tax law. Like, I don't know, like, you know, okay. Actually a really good example. I think it was Donald Rumsfeld who who actually worked for the Pentagon. I think he was the head of department of defense, somebody under, under president Bush. And every year he would write the IRS a letter saying, you know, I've done this tax return to the best. So the state of status, right. He he ran one of the biggest organizations in, in the United States, in the United States government. And he said, I, I've, I've done, I filled my tax return out to the best of my ability. There's some famous person that does this every year. It may or may not be, be Donald Rumsfeld. And it says, and of course, Rumsfeld has left us now. But I don't know if it's correct because the tax laws are too complicated for me as an individual to understand whether or not I'm in compliance. And that is, this is a good way to look at, this is my biggest single problem with Ethereum. Forget about the pre-mine, for, forget about, you know, code is law, but unless we change our minds, how can a system which is massively sprawled have auditing and consistency across all its levels, it's impossible. It's nearly impossible because it becomes this combinatorial explosion of different states. And this is why limits on block size, limits, Bitcoin has to do one thing for its entire lifetime, and that's count. Nobody can answer you on what Ethereum is supposed to do. A world computer? What is that? That's like, that literally means it's going to do everything. Well, I can tell you as a computer scientist, that means it's going to have every bug under the sun. And we've seen that. We've seen this with the DAO hack. I guess... We're waiting to see how how proof of stake plans out. But I guess the real lesson here is smaller, tighter systems distribute better and are easier to trust. And that's why we have so much mistrust in our system, because for every law, because it's so large, I can point to a contradictory law. And we haven't focused on the one thing that matters. What are the, the Bill of Rights? Ten things. Simple. Was it perfect? No, it was good. We should really go back to you know that level of simplicity and make sure that the Bill of Rights protects all individuals. Yeah, even prior to that, well, I guess that's too general, but I was just thinking the Magna Carta was just life, liberty, and viable property, right? That's that's it. Uh, granted, it leaves out a lot of the devil in the details, but really that's all we ever wanted government to do, right? Just to bring force to bear anytime life, liberty, or property were being uh, attacked, Right. And, and the individuals had a lot more skin in the game. And I want to talk about that. I've got a quote that really shows Seoul, well, maybe a decade before Taleb defining skin in the game and what it is. But the end of the Declaration of Independence is pledging our lives, our fortunes and our sacred honor. So it isn't just that the government is to intervene. It's like, hey, we as individuals feel responsible and are responsible for our, our own safety and we'll take responsibility for that. And you can see this in Yanmi's quotation is that when you surrender responsibility for the rice and the beef that you are going to get, you also surrender control over your life. And I think she got exactly what the famous saying is, is that a government that can give you everything can also take everything from you. And in fact, in practice does. And so it's really interesting. I think you played on this dynamic that like there's these profusion of laws and then a profusion of contradictions and confusion. And then people beg for an authoritarian to come in and and they get predictably that, but it doesn't produce the results. It's kind of like escape from freedom. The individual want escape from the freedom of choice. And this is one of the fundamental things that Marxism understands. It is not built on an understanding of human nature or on an understanding of how wealth is created. 
It's a purely ivory tower construction. We were talking about this, right? If you talk to anybody who has lived in a socialist or communist country, they'll never say that Marxism is a good idea. And Yanmi Park, as somebody who escaped North Korea, is saying politicians talking about removing inequality is, this, is the beginning of the end. And w- what I'm trying to say is that Marxism is insulated from reality. It doesn't because the state of man and nature, this is the actual thing that most people are afraid of, Robert. The state of a human being in nature is poverty and destitution. And so many of the problems that people claim to have with capitalism are problems with reality. They don't, I don't like getting out of bed in the morning, you know, working and figuring out like how I'm going to make ends meet. I don't think anybody likes it. I would love to live in a paradise where everything was abundant. That's not the planet that we live on. And so I think as part of this conflation is people are assigning to capitalism things that are true about physical reality. There's a finite number of resources. They have competing uses, and we need to allocate those resources efficiently. And so they, it's, they don't dislike capitalism. They dislike reality because in reality, we have to figure out how to take Earth's very finite and scarce resources and distribute them to the greatest number of people. That's- yeah, brilliantly said. Once again, I'm reminded of um, oh, I forgot the 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 name of the author, but he wrote "Man is Born Free." Yet everywhere he is in chains, and there's this. It's overly romanticizing the state of nature, which is poverty, as you said. And I think it was Hayek or Mises that retorted and said, "Man's not really born free. I mean, we're free, but we're kind of within the." We're subject to the scarcities of nature and the harsh brutality of nature. And it's through this economic process, right, of, of using means to satisfy ends and uh, delaying present consumption, investing for the future, this kind of layered approach that we've resolved so many of these problems to get to this, this point of, of civilization. And it's, that's, what's really creating freedom. That's what's creating the upward uh, pressure on our option space as individuals, right? Now you and I have the option to communicate remotely and we can, you know, book a plane ticket and fly anywhere in the world. We can walk into a, a restaurant and have a hot plate of food. Like all of these options that exist as modern luxuries are the result of that accretive process over time. So it's, you know, we have to be, I guess, yeah, to look at reality for what it is, is that we live in a reality that's not exactly hospitable to us per se. It takes a lot of work and effort and uh, development of knowledge to figure out how to bend nature to suit our wants. And, and the central planner's fallacy is always, and not dissimilar from the invincible fallacy, is always that I can create a paper simulation of reality that will work better than reality. And we had a tiny Twitter exchange on this, but that was exactly what Jason Lowry was saying will not work and will never work. And what is wrong with the proof of stake system is that there is no fundamental connection to physical reality and you can't short circuit that process. So the very act of whatever the number is, the number is constantly changing. I think you Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin is either above or below the cost to produce it. But let's say it costs about 20 grand in electricity to produce a Bitcoin. If you don't have to go through that scarce resource allocation, and it's just a paper system where, okay, if you had some more Ethereum, you can stake and now sign transactions. And you know, if we find if you make a transaction, if you approve a transaction that we disagree with, we'll take away your stake. That's not, there's no underlying tie to real economics. And maybe this is the brilliance. Maybe you can't separate cryptocurrency from proof of work. 
And that's why Bitcoin will always be a proof of work system. And what is this? This is the capitalist connection. This is what Mises, okay, this is a good way to put it. Mises, and we made this point in the in the very first podcast on order without organizations, that Mises shows and complexity theory shows that the market is an irreducible process. There's no substitute for it. Central planner is trying to say, hang on, we see some inequality. We see some improvements that can be made. We're going to do it on paper. It has never worked because it avoids this connection to economic and complex reality. So I wonder if you'd run with that, because I know you and Jason really spent some time developing that idea. But this is the same idea that whether you're engaging in the invincible fallacy or the fatal conceit, you're you're stepping your or Marxism. You're stepping away from reality and saying things should be a certain way, but you're not connected to how things actually need to happen according to physics. I'll let you run with that. And I'll I'll come back with a with a Feynman quote. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. This this whole idea of a paper simulation of reality—that's what proof of stake is doing, right? And and that the the clip we played of Vitalik at the beginning of that episode. I'm referring to episode six of the Jason Lowry series it was titled power projection and human imagination it was a very, very big hit. Actually, we opened with a clip from Vitalik basically saying, look, Bitcoin is, you know, confined by the laws of physics. We can move over here to proof of stake and liberate ourselves from the laws of physics and create this whole metaversal reality, right? Where we rewrite our own laws of physics. Like, okay, great. You can do that. But then you've just created a sophisticated video game that does not reconcile to reality in any true sense. And that's the whole point of Bitcoin, right? It's you have a digital abstraction that is, or it's really, uh, it's an abstraction that's been reified, I guess, through proof of work. And you can only do that through proof of work, right? There needs to be a real world. Because it's connected to reality. Like, yes. like you, you either have the electricity and you have the CPU power, you have the FPGAs, you have the, the integrated circuits, or you don't. Yes. And there's just no, that's why proof of work is proof of work. Cause I proved that I did the work. Yes. And anchoring it in the laws of physics such that it, you're anchoring it into something, a rule set that cannot be bent, which is thermodynamics and physics and all of this. And that's what made, that's what coheres the integrity of the monetary network in a way that no other consensus mechanism possibly can. Yeah. And what that reminds me of, uh, and I do respect Vitalik's intelligence. I don't agree with his views on complex systems. Right. And so he's failed at this before, you know, there's this famous quote from him, which is like, Oh, I just don't think that $5 a transaction is what the internet money should be. Okay. Why is that funny? Ethereum then proceeded to have gas fees that like, you know, went through the stratosphere and far outstripped any transaction fees in Bitcoin. And he, he is not unlike a central planner who are Marxists saying like, this is not how things should be, right? So politicians aren't, politicians aren't Buddhists, they're shouldists. And they come along constantly with visions that are, that are abstracted from reality. The invincible fallacy being a classic one is that, they, hey, we should have these equal outcomes, even though people are constantly self-sorting and that throughout history, either in natural phenomenon or in sociological phenomenon, people never distribute evenly and randomly. And thank God, that would be a cancer of society in some sense, right? The inability of people to sort one another. But he's seen this, these predictions fail to pan out before. And what they both have in common, that's fiat. That is a fiat degree. They're saying that, okay, reality be darned. Things should be this way because I say so. And now let's let give reorganize society to give me the power so that I can I can address this manufactured wrong. Yeah, central planners keep shooting all over everyone, right? I hate the word right. "should." I try to avoid it as much as possible. 
because there's there's this implication, right? That you have some superior position or knowledge when you convey that and you say, Oh, you should do this. It's one thing if someone asks you for advice, like, Hey, what should I do in this situation? And then you say, Oh, you should do this, but right. to try and, you know, the central planner is basically saying, you know, we've figured it out, right? All of you and your self-organizing efforts were wrong from our position of superiority. Here's what you should do. And that, uh, projection has proven to be repeatedly self-destructive in almost every situation that it's applied. Yeah. And this is a, well, this is a very common theme. Now we've been talking about how do we get around overloaded language, right? Because single words can come like the word society can become meaningless. And this is our problem with code as law. It was our problem with the extent of law. It was your problem. The problem that you stated with how do we get discourse to be more precise. And you know what this reminds me, this is what soul is doing in the book. This is why he says discrimination is not a word that's useful unless we distinguish 1A, 1B, type 2 discrimination. They're all distinct. So should needs at least a type 1 and a type 2. And I want to give an example. If you have hard probabilities, like when I say the sun should rise in the morning, that, that means I'm saying with very high probability that this event is likely to occur. When I say that blue people and yellow people should have the same outcome, I am now asserting a, this is a type two should, right? So this is again where this precision and, and actually where I'm fascinated and I didn't expect the conversation to go here is that what soul is doing is forcing us to be very precise with language. And the highest expression of that is something, a formal language that can be compiled by a computer, because there's nothing to argue about. Now, there are paradoxes even in computer science. We've talked about some of these in the past. But this is really what economic systems that are based on scarcer than gold or perfected levels of scarcity, right? Because like again, is the gold supply roughly predictable? Like, Do we know what it costs to pull gold out of the ground? Yes. Is it as solid as 21 million? No way. And so I, I think what we're showing here is that maybe this, maybe the next level, and, and Balaji, who you had on the show, has talked about this a little bit before, and I've talked to him about this as well, is there's natural language, which is English. The law is written in natural language. There's formal language, which is code. And maybe what we're seeing is that natural language will need to imitate some of the properties of formal languages so that we can agree and do what you said more than 30 minutes ago, which is how do we apply the law equally to all individuals? Well, isn't the concept lady justice to me is very much like a computer. The reason she's blind is whatever's on the scales. She's not looking at your race, your gender, or religion. Whatever's on the scales is what you get. And that is very much the objectivity we're trying to inherit in the world with Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a great point. The, you know, the sun, when you said the sun should rise tomorrow, that's like a probabilistic statement saying like, well, pretty high degree of likelihood that it will rise. But the should of, you know, blue and yellow people should be segregated or whatever it was. That's more of a normative statement, right? It's not saying there's a high degree of probability. These two groups of people should be separated. It's a, That's right. a value judgment of some kind. I think they should be separated for these reasons. So that word should right there, very common, but very slippery and that it can go kind of two different directions. And the point on language is fascinating too. I've wondered how much our technological realities influence our vernacular because you see it like we use new wor words now that, uh, you know, uh, something is hardwired into your brain, for instance, right? That's like, it's a, 
uh, a metaphor that we got from electronics, I suppose, or, you know, we'll say, right, like, right, right. Um, you know, the TLDR, right. The TLDR thing is something that happened in the blogosphere, but now we say it to one another, the, right. the too long, don't read thing. Um, or, let's do a quick download. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm just wondering, like you're, you're describing, maybe there's kind of this, a syncretism between natural and formal language occurring, but you see it occurring with like, it's, it's, it's procedurally what we do every day and the technologies we engage with, we start to communicate to one another and form our worldviews, I think, based on those technological realities. And maybe some of the central planning fallacy is us inheriting, inheriting the mechanistic sort of top-down worldview we had from Newtonian physics and large-scale industrial 100%. life. You know, we thought we could just dominate nature and bend it to our will. So, you know, to such an extent that we, we've now applied that to other human beings. Um, well, and that was precisely and, Keynes and Keynes yeah. was, and we talked about this going all the way back to order without organizations. Keynes was a great admirer of Newton. And he basically said, well, the economy in not so many words is like, is a physical equation, like a balloon, it can expand, it can contract. And then, you know, gave these pseudoscientific equations. This was this reification, right? I'm going to take you know, a mental model, I'm going to reify it. And, and to this day, we are now suffering the actions of the Federal Reserve, which look at this expansion and contraction of the economy and trying to control the business cycle. But that is very much what Mises was arguing against. And this goes back to there are no constants in Austrian economics, number one. Number two, that this distributed process of market computation, call it proof of work, just provocatively for a second, cannot be substituted by any proof of stake or paper-based system which separates itself from reality. So these are all like really deep and interesting things. And remember, economic calculation, Wirtschaftsrechnung in Austrian economics, it, computation demands units. In Mises's mind, there was something, and these are all very mathematical concepts. Uh, again, going back to that other podcast, we won't rehash the whole thing, is the purpose of the market process was to elevate subjective values, which are ordinals, things I prefer one over the other into Cardinal's objective prices. So there is very much the nature of computation at stake here. And the argument between central planners and let's call them libertarians is not, should we plan? It's, should we plan in a distributed manner that takes into account all the information? Or should we plan in a centralized manner, which you know may be extracted from abstracted from reality and may take into account limited information. And I, what I want to help the, the, the listeners to really understand is that distributed computation is a thing. And this is what sorting and unsorting is all about. When people are choosing a spouse without even knowing their IQ, with very high correlation, picking a spouse with similar IQ, they are using information to sort themselves. And these are the types of effects. What, what it really comes down to is we need to make sure that individuals are free enough to make good decisions. And that is where unsorting becomes very painful and counterproductive is it doesn't respect the individual's right to make a decision that is best for themselves. And the whole point of the invisible hand and the emergent complexity is that the decisions I make, this is what anti-capitalists or Marxists are most afraid of. It turns out to be the case that the decisions I make for my own selfish ends, not to harm others, but to produce the best outcome for me, also produce the best outcomes for society. And this is what Yami Park is showing. In spite of the rhetoric, and Sol attacks this constantly, that rhetoric and reality are very different things. Yeah, r run with that. There's a lot there still. There's a lot. The, the computation demands units. I mean, it's somewhat obvious, right? Again, if you're going to have any communication, there has to be some consensus, right? Or 
when I say a word, presumably uh, we have close to the same definition of the word, at least so, at least to the extent that we can communicate somewhat reliably. <laughs> now, if you break that consensus, then we can't, you know, if I'm speaking another language or whatever, then we can't, we cannot communicate. And the same is true with any computational system. There have to be units, preferably standardized units. I would say that's the ideal, right? Where it's standardized and immutable such that the uh, speaking entity and the recipient entity have like a 100% consensus on the unit itself. But as Misa said, there are no constants in human action, right? We've been trying to develop a proxy for that. I mean, I guess gold was like the most constant thing we had in, in, in human action. And now Bitcoin has maybe provided us the closest thing we'll get to a constant. And the point on central planning, you know, it's not the term is actually kind of bunk because yeah, of course we need planning, right? People still have to plan their affairs. They need economic calculation to engage in planning actually, right? The, the, more stable and standardized those units of measurement and communication are, the longer term you can engage in economic planning. It's really about coercion versus freedom, right? Because central planning implies coercion, right? There's someone on high imposing their plan on those below them. Whereas in a free society, everyone's doing their own planning, self-sorting, self-organizing. So when we, when we say central planning, some people might wrap around the axis of planning and be like, what do you mean? Of course we need planning. How are we going to get the roads, right? What's the first thing That's everyone right. says of, to <laughs> contradict the libertarian? Who's going to build the roads? So. Well, and this is what Mises calls the alleged planlessness of capitalism, right? Capitalism is distributed planning. It's planning par excellence. All the actors are acting according to their own individual economic benefits that produces the best results for the whole, the cheapest goods, the most technological improvements, rising standards of living. And the alleged planlessness of capitalism, the socialist always wants to substitute their own imperfect plans against the alleged planlessness of capitalism. So there's a straw man argument going on of it saying, well, we either have central planning or no planning. No. You either have central planning or you have decentralized planning. And this is where Seoul is really coming with decentralized planning. And I want to I want to pull us back into, into chapter three here. And there's a really interesting run here and a couple of things. So first, from the Investors Business Daily, earlier this year, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, broadened the authority of two anti-discrimination laws, the Fair Housing Act and Equal Credit Opportunity Act, making illegal any housing or credit policy that results in disproportionately fewer Blacks or Latinos Receiving housing or home loans than whites, quote, even if those policies are race neutral and evenly applied across all groups. This is very concerning because we are making structural equality, which everybody wants, impossible. They are literally saying it is illegal to apply the same process to all individuals because they don't understand that between type two discrimination and type one B discrimination. And we're going to get into some more statistics here, but this is again the mind of Thomas Sowell, and he turns this into skin in the game. Watch this. Here, yet again, we see the implicit assumption that there would be no disparate outcomes unless there were disparate treatment. Moreover, that assumption appears to be almost impervious to evidence. And here's skin in the game before skin in the game. One major difference between people sorting or unsorting themselves, on the one hand, and government officials sorting or unsorting them, on the other hand, is that people who sort or unsort themselves receive both the benefits and costs of doing so. But government officials receive neither the benefits nor the costs of unsorting people. 
and so may persist in the process in utter disregard of benefits or costs that fall on others. Last sentence. Indeed, the political costs of admitting to having inflicted socially counterproductive policies are a powerful incentive to keep on inflicting those policies and ignoring or denying their consequences. Wow. It's incredible. And it's just back to what we said earlier about complex systems, right? Just having throughput of information is what allows them to adapt and self-organize. But if you interrupt that flow, you get bad out, you get suboptimal outcomes, let's say. And this entire layer of administrative or government intervention is just inhibiting people's capacity to self-sort or self-organize. And this goes back to costs. Where do the costs land? And in, in the book, Skin in the Game, Talib makes the point that, you know, some large number of Roman at first died with a spear in their chest. Okay, what does that mean? That means that when they said, hey, let's go to war, they got on their horses and, you know, they led the charge into war. Now consider a politician who implements an unsorting policy. Let's say like, hey, we should take people from this, this disadvantaged community and put them into this disadvantaged community. It may cost millions of dollars. They're probably, A, moved on to another job by the time the costs of that of that program have become apparent and the failures of that program have become apparent and they don't incur and there's no cost upon themselves. They didn't take any money out of their own pockets. You never run out of other people's money, which is the problem with socialism, right? As Thatcher stated. So uh, this to me is tremendously important to how we design systems. So the whole point of skin in the game is that if we have systems where people are, they experience are they are harmed by their own bad decisions, bad decisions will be rarer. And what Saul is showing us is that the reason that uh, the unsorting of people and the invincible fallacy continues is that there's no cost inflicted upon politicians for unsorting individuals, in spite of the tremendous social costs and adverse outcomes for the individuals that are unsorted. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, he said that the politicians suffer neither costs nor enjoy rewards, but I would say maybe they do enjoy some rewards from this, uh, this unsorting process they inflict on others because they can do, they can arbitrage, right? They can do backroom deals and, Oh, we're going to move so many people from this group to this piece of land over here. Well, maybe they can do a real estate land deal over there knowing that they're going to forcibly, you know, do a, a, a building project or whatever it is to house them. So there's, you know, not only is it severed skin in the game, but it introduces this vector for corruption where people can, you know, kind of twist, public rules and bend them to private gain in a way that they otherwise couldn't. Yeah. The, the most egregious thing in all of politics is graft, which is to say that you embezzle public funds or you somehow benefit from your, from the ad policies that you advocate. And if you think about it, the entire socialist and authoritarian no, and the socialist and statist mindset is we're going to promise you all kinds of benefits. What did the dictators in North Korea promise? They're like, hey, we're going to remove inequality. We're going to give you rice and stew to eat every day. How is that not graft? You're literally bribing individuals and saying like, hey, <laughs> if, you, if you vote for me, I will give you these things. And it is precisely that. And we should see it for what it is. And what you're pointing out here is whenever there's a centralization of power, there's room for conflict of interest. And what Seoul would say is that we rarely look into, first of all, what is the track record or accuracy of these politicians? And what do they stand to gain? 
And it's highly ironic because many of the leading politicians or Congress people in the United States haven't held a job in, in over 40 or 50 years. Like their, their job is to continue to get elected. And their incentive, in some sense, is just to continue to run programs because those are programs that give them larger departments and allow them to allow them avenues to benefit the interests that they think are important. But there again, they're substituting the desires of the computer, the, the consumers with their own personal desires. Yeah. Yeah. And then inhibiting the market's capacity to satisfy consumer desires, because all of those programs have to be paid for through the net theft of taxation or inflation. So it's back to that, you know, the store owner having to charge higher prices in the neighborhood with, you know, crime and theft. Well, the entire marketplace has to charge higher prices to, to pay for these government subsidies. And it, this is like the key point that I got out of, well, a key point I got several out of human action was that that is why all government action is a mess, misallocation of capital. They're always withdrawing productive factors from the market economy to fund these programs. So there's, again, science of hidden consequences, right? There's always this unseen benefit that we, we never see materializing as a result of taxation and inflation. Um, but what we do see is the new bridge or the new whatever the, the government built. And we think that's a great thing, right? And we applaud them and we have ceremonies and look how much this guy got done. But you never see the unseen uh, allocation of capital that would have been consistent with the configuration of consumer wishes, which would actually be a, a larger net benefit than anything you could do with those stolen proceeds. Yeah. And I think the example, I don't remember if it was New York or San Francisco, but they built a single public restroom and it was $20 million project by the time it was done. Right. And, and yes. I mean, is that a public? Good? And it sure. took 20 years or something, right? It took a crazy amount of time a totally unexpected amount of time. And here again, what's happening is that the local actors who have the local information, right, or a private contractor who could have provided that service much more efficiently are blocked out of the process. And there are millions of examples of this. Uh, the Pentagon famously was paying like, you know, $150 for toilet seat lids or $300 for coffee pots. And like that had to be military spec or this and that and the other. And, and this is common again, because these systems are created in some sense, divorced from reality. They Governments don't have to make ends meet. They can always just ask for more budget or when their budget is literally in the trillions of dollars, it becomes totally unimportant to account for small things like those. Whereas individuals have very fine-grained information about what their wealth is and what their needs are and can make those types of decisions locally. And so here again, I think the ultimate question is what gets centralized versus what's distributed. And I think we can only cleanly say that the, the enforcement of the rule of law, so the rule of law must be simple. It must be connected to reality. And profit is one of the ways that we connect human systems to reality, the same way that proof of work is the way that we connect computer systems to reality. It must be connected to reality and it must have a small enough scope to where either computers or people or both can understand it well enough to apply it fairly and evenly. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a great point. And then, you know, just getting the graft out of the system and the bribe, which the bribery is effectively a theft too, right? Because they're misapplying a public rule as a result of the bribe. Actually, I don't actually, I'm not sure about that because I've read some Rothbard that I think advocated for letting some bribery take place. 
that it would be maybe that's interesting. You could penalize receiving a bribe, but not giving a bribe. I, I, or, I can't recall exactly. There was a passage in Mises also, which deserved further inspection. He was saying, so I think here's what, what is true is that governments never accumulate capital. And mm -hmm. Mises's main point is that all technological improvements, rising wages, rising standard of living, all comes from capital accumulation. Mm -hmm. And never in the history of society have governments accumulated capital. They can only disperse capital. Mm -hmm. But he goes on and makes some interesting points about how even if the government is paying something, paying for something through tax revenue, if it's subject to market forces, it still has a certain connection to reality. And that's maybe a nuance we can tease out in, in, a, few, in, in a future episode. But again, these are this is why complex systems are complex is that there are any number of edge cases to think through. And I think the question now is how we have evolution as a society without revolution, right? Mm -hmm. So revolution can go in either direction. It can go in the status direction. It can go in the libertarian direction. The American revolution being an example of the latter and mm -hmm. North Korea being an example of the former. And I think the question is now is how do we set ourselves up from an orderly exit from the current system, which clearly doesn't work, but doesn't throw away the parts of the system that are working. And this is like, you know, this is where, why soul is so important and so relevant is he gives us the intelligence and the vision with which to make penetrating statements about mm. what politicians are trying to sell us. It's like, Oh, like, should we remove inequality? Well, what does that mean? Mm. Let's first define the different types of discrimination. Let's see what the, if there's any evidence for how this has worked out in the past, let's see what the hidden costs are going to be. Mm. And he's really, I guess, trying to help us plan better societies. And it must be very discouraging if your soul in your nineties and, and things seem to be going in an increasingly interventionist direction, in spite of the fact that that's produced outcomes to the contrary. Yeah. But the it, stated rhetoric. Yes. And again, back to rooting this to reality, it seems like the best approach is to give people recourse to a form of money or property that is not so easily violated. So you can actually reduce the attack surface of government interventionist, which then is equivalent to energizing the capacity of people to self-sort, self-organize, right? That you're less subject to the less vulnerable to political whim, let's say in a Bitcoin world than you are in a fiat world. So I would imagine in a Bitcoin world, we'll see a lot more self-organization than we would top-down organization. And just to like try to put a bow on this for chapter three, as he said at the beginning of the chapter, the crucial point here is that when people spontaneously sort themselves, the results are seldom even or random and are often quite skewed. So self-organization comes with inequality, right? This all people are going to be in all different places doing different things in different ways. They, they're going to choose to perhaps coalesce into groups that they are familiar with, whether that's in terms of values or religion or race, whatever it is, we don't need someone to intervene in that process and break it up or change it. Right. Just let, just that's naturally what people do. It's naturally what creates the most wealth to interfere with that process. I think is just self-destructive at the collective scale. And our responsibility as society is just to make sure that individuals are protected. Mm -hmm. So nobody likes type two discrimination. Nobody wants that. And the way to really eliminate that is to inflict economic harm upon the actors who engage in type two discrimination. And, and that's kind of, let's see if I can find this quote here. The best antidote 
to government unsorting is a competitive market. And, and here's the soul comes in with this. Many observers who see racism as both widespread and widely effective in the job market fail to account for the fact that employers in competitive markets have actively sought out black workers, even in places and times where racism was rampant and undisguised, such as in South Africa during the area of apartheid under a white minority government openly proclaiming white supremacy. And so this is the, you know, it, this is the irony of statism in some sense is that they fear monopoly the most and end up creating a super monopoly. But the best antidote to that is competition. And the best fuel for competition is the ability for individuals to make decisions that are best for themselves. And this produces the strongest outcomes for minorities and other individuals that we want to protect from type two discrimination. And that is a great place to finish. Anish, thank you again. Here we go. Let's see. Chapter four is going to be the world of numbers. And it uh, just a little teaser there. He gets into sins of omission in government numbers and sins of commission. And that is exactly the seen and the unseen. So chapter four, we'll, we'll have more soul for the rest of the universe. Exciting stuff. All right. I'll see you back here again soon.